Yesterday we started exploring this precious Christian truth, justification, that in God's own righteousness, he declares us righteous as a free gift of grace, a generous act of undeserved favour. It's a wonderful, it's an amazing, it's a precious truth that God justifies the ungodly like you and me. It's one of the reasons why the Christian gospel is such good news. But when you stop and think about it, doesn't the fact that God justifies the unrighteous mean that God does the very thing that he condemns himself? Have a look at what Yahweh says there on your book, page 21, from Proverbs 17, verse 15. We read there that one who justifies the wicked and one who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And similarly, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, Yahweh says, I will not justify the guilty. And yet Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, but to one who without works trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now that's weird, right? God says he will not justify the guilty, but he justifies us who without doubt are guilty. That's a bit troubling. If we take what God says seriously, it raises questions about God's character. If God says one thing but then does another, that's not right. If God says justifying the wicked is an abomination and then goes and does it, doesn't that mean that God himself is not just? Is God really righteous? See, if a human judge in a courtroom looked at someone who they knew was guilty, standing there in the dock, and they said, you're acquitted, you're righteous, you're okay... That's not real justice, is it? That's a miscarriage of justice. So when God justifies us, how is that right and just? How can he justify the guilty and still be righteous himself? And the answer to that question takes us to the very engine room of the Christian understanding of justification. And what is there in the engine room of justification is the work of Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege to look at that together tonight. So, let's go back to Romans chapter 3, a key passage that we looked at last night. In these verses, the Apostle Paul draws together several key concepts in God's justification of us. And as you follow along, ask yourself, in this passage that I'm reading, how is Jesus crucial to justification? How's Jesus' feature here? Okay, let's have a read. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove his righteousness at the present time, so as to be righteous, and the one justifying the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Now, you probably picked it, that verses 24 and 25 are key. Justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, God can give us the gift of justification because of what He Himself has done in Jesus. In particular, verse 25, He put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, we'll come back to that a bit later, but Paul's talking there about Jesus' death. Jesus' death on the cross is key to our justification. Now, in particular, as you dig into this passage and try to really get your heads into it, and I'm I'm going to be honest, I'm going to push you tonight in your understanding of the Bible. This is not lightweight tonight, right? So get your thinking caps on. There are four key biblical and theological jigsaw pieces that we need to put together in order to understand how it all works. And Paul mentions them all in that passage in Romans 3. Now, I've got a little diagram here just to try to show you. The first jigsaw puzzle he talks about is sin. That was there in verses 23 and 25. That's the first puzzle piece. Second puzzle piece in verse 22, Paul says there's no distinction which if you read the whole chapter, you realise he means no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So to grasp what Paul's saying here about justification, you have to be able to link it in with the theme of Jews and Gentiles in the Bible, and that takes us back to the promise God made to Abraham in the Old Testament. So the second puzzle piece is Abraham and the promise. Got to put that into your picture. Third, in verse 21, Paul talks about God's righteousness being disclosed now apart from the law. So to understand what Paul's saying here, you've got to grasp what he's talking about, the law. That's the third puzzle piece. And then finally, the key central puzzle piece, the most important of all, is Jesus Christ, who brings all the puzzle pieces together. So that's what we're going to do. In the first two-thirds of our time together is we're going to just track through those four puzzle pieces, what they all are and how Jesus connects them all together and how we can understand justification. And then in the last third, we're going to have lots of fun applying that in all sorts of different ways into our life. That's where we're going. So let me lead us in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, grant us minds to understand your word by your spirit. Work in our hearts that we might hear what you have to say and that it might change us and fill us with joy and wonder. And we pray, please, tonight that you would help us to concentrate on what you are saying to us through your word here in Scripture, so that we might know you better, love you more, and serve you with everything you've given us. Amen. Okay, piece number one, sin. So to understand the sin puzzle piece... We need to go back to the opening chapters of the Bible and the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was here that humanity first expressed its rebellion against God, where humanity first displayed its unrighteousness. Now, if you're not familiar with it, you can go away later and read Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Adam and Eve broke God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that was sin's entry into the world. And the consequence of that transgression, that breaking of God's law, was that they would die. You can see the Apostle Paul's summary of that situation that flowed from Adam and Eve's transgression in the garden, there on your page, from Romans 5, verse 12. He said, Sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death came through sin. And so death spread to all 
because all have sinned. The universal penalty for sin is death. That's why there's cemeteries. Because of sin. That's why death is in the world. Because of our sin. That's why death is ubiquitous, universal, because all of us have sinned. And a bit later, in verse 20, Paul says there, sin exercised dominion in death. That is, sin rules through death. We live in a world where sin and death reign. Now, that's a pretty sobering picture when you think about it. How does sin wield its power? By condemning us all to die. Sin rules through death. Because like Adam, we all sin. Have you had the experience where you're so used to something being broken that you no longer register that it's a problem? My first car was a Nissan Pulsar Q. It was awesome. It was secondhand. And I bought it from a guy in a pub. True story. Um, um, I, think he, I think he was... Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it, had, it had a sunroof. How cool was that? Uh, the problem was the sunroof leaked. And so whenever it rained, um, the laws of physics meant that if you turned right, the water came in and went left. And if you turned, turned left, the water came in and went right. And so that was fine. I just kept a bunch of towels behind me. And whenever people got into the car and it was raining or looking overcast, I'd give everybody a towel. I didn't think there was a problem. People gave me strange looks when I gave them lifts. You get so used to something being broken, you just think it's normal. Or the Wi-Fi at our place. Uh, the Wi-Fi, our modem was just super old. We'd had it for years. And this is not an exaggeration, every seven minutes, it dropped out. All connections lost. It happened constantly and had happened for so long that it just became normal. Other people would come over and say, hey, what's wrong with your internet? Oh, it drops out every seven minutes. <laughs> you know that's not normal, right? You just, you can get internet that stays on like all the time for hours and hours and hours. You get so used sometimes to things being broken that you start to think that being broken is normal, especially if we ignore the reminders. Well, sin is like that. It has so corrupted everything that we forget it's a problem. But God's given us plenty of reminders of our universal sin problem. If only we have the eyes to see them. I'll put some up on the screen here. The first reminder that God's given us, is death. Human mortality. It's meant to remind us that we have a sin problem. Every time you see a cemetery or a crematorium. And sickness. Sickness and hospitals, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, even your Medicare card. Every time you see something that we need because of sickness, that's a reminder. Not just that we have a health problem, but that we have a sin problem, which has created the health problem. Your Medicare card, every time you pull it out, it's because of sin. 
No, it's not a political comment. It's just, look. <laughs> Let's keep going. What about, what about when you see drought or environmental decay? That's meant to be a reminder from God to you that we have a sin problem. Or what about when you see people in pain, like the pain of childbirth? Or pain in relationships? See, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that all of these are God-given reminders of the sin problem that we all have. These things are meant to be proclaiming loudly to you and to me, to all of humanity, you have a problem. And your problem is with God. You've rejected His word and His way, and there is a judgment day coming. But we've become blind to God's reminders. And maybe that's why we forget how massive and universal and desperate our sin problem is. Because we don't see the reminders for what they are anymore. Well, what's God's response to this universal sin problem? Sin reigning over us through death. God is righteous. He won't let sin and death be the last word over his creation. He maintains his righteousness and works to fulfill his good intentions for his creation. And that brings us to the next puzzle piece. The Jew-Gentile issue. And the key figure here is Abraham and the promise God made to him. So, piece number two, Abraham and the promise. Given that the whole world is under the rule of sin and facing condemnation and death, how's God going to restore his good purposes for his creation? Well, God does it through establishing a series of covenants or formal agreements. And the key covenant that we're focusing on here is the one God established with a man named Abraham, which we've been reading about in faculty time from Genesis chapters 12 to 22. God makes a promise to Abraham, and you can see my little picture there. That's the arrow coming down in the diagram to Abraham. Part of the promise was that he would be the father of a great nation, what became known as the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. But another part of the promise was that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Now, what was that blessing that would come to all the Gentile nations through Abraham? Well, remember the big problem of the whole world is under the reign of sin, facing God's condemnation. The blessing that was promised to all the nations through Abraham was the blessing of justification. Have a look at what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. There in your book. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. The gospel was announced to Abraham. All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. And verse 8 tells us the blessing was that they'd be justified by faith. So what we have here in Abraham is this promise of justification for all the nations of the world. Now, at this point with Abraham, it's just a promise. We have to wait until Jesus for the fulfillment but you can start to see God's righteous plan to restore his good intentions for his creation through justification. It starts to be worked out. So, moving to our third puzzle piece, the law. The law was God's good gift to his people Israel. 
the people who he had already saved out of slavery in Egypt. The law told them how to live as God's covenant people, including what they ought to do when they sinned, that is, when they failed to live the way they were meant to. So let me put some things up on the screen for you. What was the purpose of the law? Four things you might like to jot down to help you understand what was the point of God's law in the Old Testament. First of all, the law told God's people how to live righteously. Think of it as God's rule book for His people. He told them how to live righteously, how to live authentic lives in accord with His goodwill and purpose. Second, the purpose of the law was also to identify sin. Think here of the law as God's searchlight, highlighting sin. Look there on your page at Romans 5.20. Paul says, but law came in so that the trespass might increase. Key word here is trespass. What does it mean to trespass? Well, you know, if you ever sort of walked around and you see a sign, trespassers will be prosecuted. That means if you cross over that boundary, you jump over the fence at that point, you might get prosecuted, right? Trespass means to cross a boundary. When Paul uses it here, he means to cross a boundary that God has set up, to break a command, an explicit command of God. See, what the law did was point out that sins that were already being committed, it pointed out and identified them now as trespass, as the breaking of God's commands. If you imagine me here, there's a line on the ground. But imagine I can't see the line. And I'm just walking around and I'm, I'm, I'm crossed the line, don't know it, and so I'm now sinning. But I didn't know it. But if I come back here and God says, look, there's the line. I go, oh, right, there's the line. <laughs> now my sin has become trespass. Right? Until the law reveals what God's line is, I don't, it's not trespass yet, it's just sin. It's still bad, but it's sin. Does that make sense? So the law identifies sin as trespass. But there's another way that the law increased trespass. The law led to even more sin being committed. It increased sin. This is the whatever you do, don't think of elephants phenomena. I'm going to show you what I mean. Please watch the screen closely. But whatever you do at this point, whatever you do, do not think about elephants. Do not think about big, charging bull elephants like this one. Don't think about little, cute baby elephants like these. Wouldn't you just love to have one of them at home? Wouldn't it be great? But don't think about elephants, by the way. Make sure you don't think about elephants. As I show you this very cute photo of Dumbo, the flying elephant with his enormous floppy ears. And whatever you do, do not think about pink elephants wearing sunglasses riding on a trailer. Now, has anyone here in the last 30 seconds not thought about an elephant? Of course, you couldn't help it, right? But I told you, under no circumstances, to think about elephants. Well, Paul says something similar, but far worse, when he says, because of the law, sin increased. 
Have a look on your page, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law led to an increase in human sin. The problem wasn't with the law itself, the problem was in us. Humanity's desire for sin, our sinful passions, were aroused by the law's prohibition of certain activities and so perversely the number of sins committed increased. And Paul summarises the situation there in verse 13. He says, It was sin working death in me through what is good, meaning the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's, that's the law identifying sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's through the law sin increasing. But why? If the law was going to increase sin like this, why did God give it in the first place? Well, the answer is the fourth point. The answer is that the law was God's temporary disciplinarian. The law was God's temporary disciplinarian for His people. Think um, of God's babysitter. The law was God's babysitter. Have a look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made, meaning Jesus. So the law was added to be in effect only until Jesus came. That's what that verse says. Jumping ahead then to verse 23. Now before faith came, that is faith in Jesus, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian. Pythagogos is the Greek word used there, until Christ came. A Pythagogos was often a male slave in the household who had charge of the children in the household, sort of like a nanny. But a Pythagogos was usually pretty tough, often viewed quite negatively in terms of being very, very strict and repressive types of supervision. Paul describes being under the law as your Pythagogos, in verse 23, as being imprisoned and guarded. So, up on the screen, instead of thinking the law as a nanny like, you know, Mary Poppins, you should probably be thinking something more like an army babysitting service, which doesn't sound like much fun. The law was there to keep God's people in line until Jesus came. Okay, so we've thought about sin, we've thought about Abraham and the promise, we've thought about the law, we've got all of that going on now. How does Jesus, the final puzzle piece, how does Jesus bring all of those things together so that we can be justified? Piece number four, bringing it all together, Jesus Christ. Let's see how Jesus impacts on each of these other puzzle pieces. I do it in reverse order this time. Jesus and the end of the law. Look at the passage from Romans chapter 10 at the top of page 24. Paul's reflecting here on his people, the Jews, who have rejected Jesus as the promised King or Christ from God. He says that, 
Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's what Paul says here about his fellow Jews. In verse 2, they're zealous for God, but verse 3, they've rejected the righteousness that comes from God and have, by rejecting Jesus, sought instead to establish their own righteousness. But we know that won't work, because Paul's demonstrated back in Romans 1-3, to all are under the power of sin, relentlessly seeking to be righteous via obedience to the law. It won't work, especially since we've seen that the law was only put in charge until Jesus came. That's what he says there in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law. The law which came in with Moses, as you can see there on the diagram, has now come to an end with the death of Jesus. True righteousness is now given, justification is given to all those who now believe in Jesus. So that's Jesus ending the law. What about the second puzzle piece, Jesus and the promise of justification? Now, these next two passages at the bottom of page 24 and the top of page 25... I think are two of the most important passages in the New Testament for understanding what we call biblical theology or how the story of the whole Bible fits together. There's other important passages too, but these ones are really important. We looked at the first part of Galatians 3, verses 8 to 14, when we introduced the promise puzzle piece a few minutes ago. The promise God makes to Abraham is that the Gentiles will share in the blessing of justification through faith. Let's pick up what Paul then says in verse 10 as he reflects again on the situation of his fellow Jews who've rejected faith in Jesus and instead they're persisting with the Old Testament law. He says there, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Notice what he's done there. He quotes the law itself, the Old Testament law itself from Deuteronomy chapter 27 to prove to them that the law says you have to obey everything in the law or you'll be under a curse. If that's the way you're going to choose to go, reject faith in Jesus and just try to follow the law, then the law itself says you're going to be cursed if you don't obey absolutely everything that's written in it. So relying on obedience to the law, that's a fool's game. It's a game you'll never win because we all sin, so we're all under the same curse. Moreover, Paul then keeps going and he points out that the law itself says that faith is actually the way to go. Verse 11, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith. He's quoting from the Old Testament of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. He's saying here that if you're trying to be right with God by doing the law, that is a completely different story to being right with God by having faith. 
if you're going to reject faith and try to be righteous by keeping the law, well, the law itself says you're going to have to keep it perfectly. And we know that's not going to work. And Paul then gets to the heart of the matter. If anyone who tries to keep the law ends up under a curse, how is God going to justify them? Well, verse 13, Christ redeemed us, and I think he probably means us Jews, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is, Jesus in his own death took the curse for us. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Paul then continues, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, justification, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now Paul makes some of the same points again in the next passage, Romans chapter 9, which I'm going to leave you to read later. But again, his point is that national Israel had failed to attain righteousness from God because they rejected faith. And they tried to attain righteousness solely on the basis of fulfilling the law. He says in Romans 9, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's the stumbling stone? Jesus. They've refused to put their faith in Jesus. And so they've missed out on righteousness, on justification as a result because they rejected faith in Jesus. And now even the Gentiles who were outside the old people of God, who never even had access to the law, because they've put their faith in Jesus, guess what? They've been made righteous and tragically national Israel has missed out. And you can see that there, I'll try to represent that in the diagram for you. So I've seen how Jesus fits with the law puzzle piece, the law has come to an end, and how he fits with the promise piece, he enables justification now to come to everyone who has faith in him. But undergirding all of these is the sin problem. Sin that entered the world from Adam. How does Jesus deal with the sin problem, which is at the heart of all the problems? Well, when it comes to dealing with sin, Paul talks about Jesus as the anti-Adam, the one who undoes the consequences of Adam's original trespass. Have a look there in Romans chapter 5 on your page. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Paul says, Therefore, just as one man's trespass, that is Adam in the garden, led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness, that's Jesus' death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You can see the diagram that I've got there, Adam and Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam, the new head of the human race. Those who are in Adam, which is all of us without God's intervention, if you're in Adam, then you're a sinner. You're facing God's condemnation and death. But because of what Jesus achieved in his death and resurrection, if you're in Christ, 
then through faith you are no longer a sinner. You're righteous. You're no longer facing condemnation and death. You enjoy justification and eternal life. See, in Jesus, God is undoing all that happened through Adam. He's undoing the sin problem. And thereby, he's restoring his good purposes for his creation. But how does Jesus' death secure this for us? Well, the next point, top of page 26. In Jesus, God condemns sin in human flesh so that sin gets everything it deserves. Have a look at what Paul says in Romans 8. 1 to 4. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And here's the key bit For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I want to focus on verse 3 there. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That is, God sent his Son to come amongst us as the man Jesus, fully God but fully human but without sin. And through Jesus' death, as our great representative, Jesus took the full force of God's wrath and fury against sin for us. See, this is the answer to the conundrum with which we started tonight. Remember how I said, if God is righteous, how can he justify ungodly people? That's not right. Well, the answer is, God made sure sin got everything it deserved. God hasn't just swept my sins under the carpet. He hasn't just taken your sins and hidden them away and said, look, it's okay, we'll just pretend it never really happened. No, your sin matters, my sin matters. They really do deserve the condemnation of God's wrath and fury. But in Jesus' death on the cross, God fully condemns our sin with all it deserves. All sin, your sin, got judged, condemned and punished in Jesus, your representative, your substitute. Look at the next passage there from Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. Jesus is the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Here's the key bit this time. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, effective through faith. God had never treated us as our sins truly deserved. Yes, we all die as a consequence of our sin, but physical death is only part of the story. The full wrath and fury of God against sin, what's it like to experience that? 
Well, if you were to experience everything you deserve for your sin, if I was to experience everything I deserve for my sin, that would be hell. That is what hell is. God's just wrath and fury against my rejection of Him, my refusal of His word and His way. Hell is what that gets. But because of His grace, because of His love, God overlooked all of the sins previously committed, holding over what they deserved until Jesus, who bore the whole lot the full horror of hell itself as our representative and substitute. That's what's going on as Jesus hangs on the cross. He endured hell for us to turn away the wrath of God that we deserve. That's what that word propitiation means there in verse 25. It literally means to turn away wrath by offering a gift. God put Jesus forward to turn away his own wrath, to turn away his wrath from us. Jesus became the focal point for all of God's judgment on human sin. Paul says the same thing in a very simple summary sentence in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, there on your page. For our sake, Paul says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God would not let sin destroy us, his creatures, so for our sake he made Jesus to be sin in our place, as your representative and substitute. So you see... Sin does get what it deserves. God doesn't overlook sin. And you and I can be, declared, can be declared righteous by God because all of our sin has been carried away by our Lord Jesus to the cross. This is the wonder of the cross of Jesus. That Jesus willingly did this so that you might be justified. It is intensely personal. Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul talks about the Lord Jesus. He said, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's each one of us. He loved you and gave himself for you. So that God might justify you by his grace as a gift. So you can have peace with God and fear no condemnation. Jump ahead with me then to the top of page 27. What we have in the death of Jesus for us is much more than a generous act by a fellow human being. Jesus is not just a human being. He's fully human and fully divine. He's God, the eternal Son, amongst us. So when Jesus dies for you, we're talking about God substituting himself for you. John Stott, in a marvellous chapter, 
in the cross of Christ, a chapter that's called The Self-Substitution of God. The whole book is worth buying just for this chapter, but the whole book's great. And frankly, if you get this quote, if you really understand this quote, then you will get a lot of the wonder of the Christian understanding of what God's like. Because this is astounding. I'll update the language slightly as I read it. Stott writes, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. He then explains, For the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. I can't imagine what it's like to have someone give their life to save yours. Maybe you've actually had that experience of someone giving up their life to save your life so that you can live. But what is it like when God himself takes on human existence and dies to save you eternally? That is the extent to which he has gone so that he might be righteous and the one justifying all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, including you and me. Well, well done. We've pushed through. That was a lot of biblical truth, a lot of wonderful truth about God there. In the last then section of this talk really today, what does this mean? What does all of this mean? Well, let's start with two consequences that flow from what we've seen here about Jesus' work to deal with sin. First of all, everyone who turns to Jesus in faith can enjoy true repentance and forgiveness. True redemption, sorry, and forgiveness. Paul summarizes it there in Ephesians 1 on your page. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He's lavished on us. Whatever the sin, Jesus has died bearing the wrath of God for it. There just is nothing left for you to pay if you turn to Him. That is immensely freeing. There is no more guilt and burden from our numerous failures. Last night I played you a song from John Floriani's album, Sin. I'm going to play you uh, another p part of another song from that same album. This song is called Repent. Now, in this song, John sings, it's, it's a fairly confronting song. John sings about heading out onto the street to take revenge on someone who'd had a go at his girlfriend. The song describes what happens but really is about how he deals with the aftermath of that event. 
We're going to listen to it. There are warning though, there is some explicit language and it does describe a violent incident. Let's uh, listen to John Florian. Step by step and step Through the rain to find my man If you hurt my baby girl you never see the sun again And I saw Street lights standing there Laughing about what he'd done With all his friends So I made a brick out of my hand And I hit that motherfucker as hard as I can I could smell the blood coming from his head His head hit the ground with a deafening sound And I thought he was dead You lay with me while I lie awake at night Cursing at these hands for what they've done to my eyes You lay with me while I lie awake at night Cursing at these hands for what they've done That I've kept clear Reserved for all the frightened faces Over all the years If I had my time again I would do the same I live that moment every night To cleanse myself with the pain You lay with me While I lie awake at night Cursing at these hands For what they've done to my eyes You lay with me while I lie awake at night Cursing at these hands for what they've done to my eyes blood on his hands. I lie awake at night, cursing at these hands and what they've done to my eyes. He can't escape replaying what he's done over and over. It's there playing out in his mind's eye every night. And he's torn about what he's done. On the one hand, he sings, if I had my time again, I would do the same. No regret. And yet, He curses his hands for what they've done and how he can't escape the pain of what he's done. And he's called the song, Repent. It's not real repentance, because real repentance is renouncing your former ways. It's actually calling out your own behaviour as wrong, as unrighteous, inauthentic. And he's not willing to do that. So, how to deal with the burden of guilt that he feels for what he's done? Well, he says, I live that moment every night to cleanse myself with the pain. 
His only solution for the relentless burden he feels is to relive it over and over again every night. But can that really cleanse his conscience? In an interview about this song, John said, This song has less to do with repenting at church and more about just kind of reliving what happened over and over again and getting what I deserve, wearing it in that sense. As I reflected on that, I thought, I think I've got two, two problems. First of all, I think, I think he underestimates what he deserves for what he, he's done. Anyone who's actually suffered violence, or if you know someone who's suffered violence, you know that they deserve more than just living with the guilt. The pain of reliving it doesn't compare to what they deserve, because what, they, or what we all deserve is God's wrath and fury. We all actually underestimate what we deserve. And secondly, can the pain of reliving the guilt really cleanse him? What he really needs is divine forgiveness. Thinking of that song reminded me of another song, a very old song, more than 3,000 years old, where the singer also struggles with the guilt of blood on his hands. It was written by King David in Israel in about 1000 BC, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was a married woman, and then he'd arranged for the killing of her husband, Uriah. Look there at the bottom of page 27 to see some of what David sang in his song about his situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God and Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. Who can really wash away our sins? Who can really wash my soul clean and deliver me from my guilt? Only the one true God. The God who is gracious and always responds when we call out in mercy. He can blot out my transgressions because of what he's done in sending Jesus, his son, in my place. Jesus took David's sin of adultery. Jesus took David's sin of murder. Jesus can take John Floriani's sin. Jesus can take all of your sin. All of mine. We have true redemption and forgiveness. Praise God for that. The second reflection on what we've seen tonight, top of page 28. God really loves you. I mean, he really, really, really loves you. If there was ever any doubt that God loves us, 
Those doubts are blown away when Jesus dies on the cross for us. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Very simply, he says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Reflecting on that amazing truth, Augustine of Hippo, who was a Christian theologian way back in the 4th and 5th century AD, he made this very bold claim. I don't know if he's right, but it's, it's bold. He says, the justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but the salvation and justification of the elect will not pass away. As those justified by God in Christ Jesus, we will continue on into all eternity. So in the light of all that we've looked at tonight, what response ought we to make? Three simple responses to God's justification of us in Jesus Christ. First of all, friends, let go of everything else you're holding on to as the reason that you're acceptable to God. Let it all go and instead embrace Jesus Christ. That's what you need to do. See, the Apostle Paul had everything going for him religiously speaking. But he knew it was holding on to Jesus that mattered. In fact, it was the only thing that counted. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 3 at the bottom of page 28. He says, If anyone else had reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) And now he lists off his top-shelf Jewish credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah, (laughs) woo! For real? Anyone else? No, I won't ask you that. (laughs) A member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had everything. He ticked all the boxes for someone who was going to be right with God. And then he says, verse 7, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Jesus. More than that, I regard everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Forget everything else. Justification from God only comes through faith in Jesus. In fact, Paul says there in verse 8, he suffered the loss of everything else, everything else he had. He regarded them as rubbish. He let go of it all in order that he might gain Jesus, be found in him. So don't let anything get in the way of you grabbing hold of Jesus. Let it all go so that you might gain Jesus and receive the righteousness that comes through faith in him. What are you holding on to as your assurance that you're right with God? 
like if you stopped and thought about it? What do you hold on to that, to assure yourself you're right with God? Is it your good intentions? Is it the fact that you're a, you know, your Christian behaviour is better than average? Is it that you pray? Do you put your confidence in the fact that you read the Bible, that you keep turning up to church or the EU? Because, friend, if that's the basis of your righteousness, you're lost. God won't justify you on the basis of your attempts to be righteous because we all get an F, a fail for righteousness on our own. You need to grab hold of Jesus. Whatever gains you had, your Christian upbringing, your Christian understanding, your Christian ministry and service, whatever gains you might have compared to knowing Jesus, your Lord, they are rubbish. Put no store in them. Forget them. Hold on to Jesus so that you can say with Paul in verse 9 that I might gain Christ be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Second, praise God, you Gentiles, for his mercy. According to Romans 15, one of the purposes of all that Jesus did was so that you might praise God for his mercy. Have a look at the top of page 29. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, that is the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promise given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. As Gentiles... Because of Jesus, we now get to share in God's promise of justification. So get busy thanking God. Get busy thanking God who justifies the ungodly like us. Sing his praises, rejoice. Let's praise him for his mercy, like Paul encourages us to. And in a moment, at the end of the session, that's exactly what we're going to do. And finally, we respond to this good news of our justification by proclaiming Jesus Christ. Our final Bible passage is, there is again from Romans, this time Romans chapter 10. How are you? With, give me a quick thumb. Are you going, yeah, yeah, I'm power and I'm good. Give me a middle if you're going, yeah, I'm not so great. I'm not, and give me a down if you're going, I'm pretty weary. I'm pretty ready for this to wrap up. Go on, give me thumbs. I need to know. It will affect what happens next. Okay. All right. You brought this on yourselves. <laughs> but you've got to promise me you're going to do it. Okay? That's right. It's, it's not too embarrassing. But we're all going to do it. No excuses. If someone's next to you, if there's some old senior staff worker who thinks, I don't need to do this, you, you poke them and make sure they do it. Okay, here we go. You have to take off your shoe, like your shoe and sock from one of your feet. Take it off. Everybody. I'll do it too.
Right. Come on. All right. <clears throat> Come on. Wave it around. All right. Now. Shh. Okay. George, you were about to take a photo of my foot. I saw you coming down with that camera at this particular moment. It's okay. If you're going to do it, I trust you. Whatever. Okay, I can see a few people with shoes on, but, you know, Bishop Peter Lynn, did you take your shoe off? He did, he took his shoe off, well done. All right. So if, if Bishop Peter Lynn can do it, you can do it too. Right, okay, right now. I've, this has two purposes, one of which is it does sort of wake you up a little bit, doesn't it? But, uh, but there is another purpose, which we'll get to. Okay, let's, let's read this passage from Romans chapter 10. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 15. Verse 9. <clears throat> Paul reminds them, starts off by reminding us that justification by faith is open to everybody. Verse 9, he says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great? That is great, isn't it? That's great. That's the great gospel that we've been exploring over the last couple of days. But then Paul draws our attention to an important implication from verse 14. But how are they to call on the one in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in one in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's God made it up, not me. I mean, I don't... So the question is, see, one of the responses, what he says is, one of the responses to God's justification of us through Jesus is to proclaim Jesus so that more people can hear, believe, and be saved. And it's Paul's point that we need more people to proclaim the good news of God's justification to us by grace in Christ. We need more to do that. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Look at your foot. <laughs> it might not look very beautiful to you. But let me tell you. Let me tell you. When you get up and you go to somewhere in the Georges River region, don't distract me at this point, all right? Thank you. If you get up and go to the Georges River region, 
and you become part of God's people there. And you share the good news of Jesus with your neighbours who've never heard his name before. They may say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you go to the Irumu people in a village in Papua New Guinea, 1,500 people who speak a language that no one else knows, and you learn that language, they become your friends and you share the good news of Jesus with them and they get saved. They are justified by God's grace as a gift. They may well say, how beautiful were their feet because they came and brought us the good news. Do you have beautiful feet? Will you take the good news? I'm going to show you a picture. This is Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Let me tell you two things about him. I'll tell you a few, but I'm going to tell you two. One, he's got a very cool name, Zinzendorf. But secondly, he's got beautiful feet. Let's leave him up there. Thanks. At age, let me tell you a little bit about Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. At age 19, 19, he was sent to visit the capital cities of Europe in order to complete his education. And now you're thinking, yeah, I could have some of that. Yeah, I'll go around the capital cities of Europe to complete my education. One day, he was in the art gallery of Dusseldorf, Germany, and he stood in front of this painting by Dominica Fetti, which was painted 100 years earlier. It's called Eki Homo. In, 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 Latin, in English, it means behold the man. It's a painting of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns and he's leaning on a piece of wood which has these words in Latin on it. And in English, they say, This have I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? Nicholas is there in Dusseldorf standing in front of this painting. And because he's educated, he can read the Latin. And he is deeply convicted and challenged. He's your age. And one of his biographers then writes, There and then the young count asked the crucified Christ to draw him into the fellowship of his sufferings and to open up a life of service to him. And that moment set the course of his life. He embraced voluntary sacrificial service as a heartfelt response to all that Jesus had done for him. He did it freely. It wasn't demanded of him. He just felt convicted and challenged, struck by what Jesus had done for him. And so, at the age of 22, he established the Moravian Brethren in Germany, which was a Christian community and missionary movement 
that went on to have a worldwide impact. In the next 14 years, Nicholas and the Moravians sent missionaries to the Caribbean, to Greenland, to Lapland, to North America, South America and to South Africa. The missionary movement, the missionary movement he established also had an impact here in Australia because later on it was Moravian missionaries who were instrumental in sharing the gospel of Jesus with indigenous Australians. How are they to hear about Jesus without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim Jesus unless they are sent? So I want to put it to you. Are you willing to be sent? Will you give up a job in finance or education or engineering or healthcare and give yourself to being sent to proclaim Jesus and the good news of God's grace? To be perfectly clear, there is a desperate need for people to hear this gospel of Jesus. Jesus says, we've heard already, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers into the harvest field. God's world needs more people who are willing to be sent, sent into cross-cultural ministry in Sydney, sent across Australia to Darwin, to Adelaide, to Perth, sent around the world, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, sent into churches, sent into schools, sent into universities and prisons and hospitals as gospel proclaimers. There's a massive need... And honestly, we have more opportunity to meet that need than most. Because of God's kindness to us, we're educated, we're mobile, we're well-trained in the Christian scriptures through the EU and lots of Bible-believing churches in Sydney. We are more gospel-rich than you probably could possibly imagine unless you've travelled around and seen just how less-reached and less-resourced so much of the world is. We have an opportunity under God to meet some of that worldwide need for more gospel workers to proclaim Jesus and the justification by grace that's found only in Him. You might think, as Paddy mentioned earlier, someone else will go. Someone else will step up and do it. Really? Why do you think that? Um, As I've been thinking about the EU and the EU staff team, I reckon we need one Howie for 40 students. Because what we do with Howies is we say, we're going to make you step up in terms of pastoral leadership. You're not looking after one small group, two small groups. You're looking after, we're going to give you 40 people to pastor and to grow in the things of Christ and to help evangelise. We need one Howie for about 40 students, which means with 850 people in EU small groups, we need 21 Howies now. We have 12. Not for want of trying. We struggle to get much more. Who's going to be giving the talks and running the electives at annual conference in another 30 years' time? It won't be me, baby. (laughs) No. Paddy and me, and I won't insult any other staff by naming them, but no, we're going to be be hiring an Uber and coming up from the nursing home. (laughs) I'm not joking, I'll be 80. I'll be 80. I'll be coming in on a walking frame up the back and I'll say, gee, who's that dude? 
It won't be me. It won't be Pat. Like, who's going, to, who's going to be serving the EU? Who's going to be doing Bible translation around the world? Are you willing to say, here I am, send me? That might feel like a big commitment for you to make at age 18 to 22. Nicholas von Zinzendorf was 19. Why do you think you need to wait longer? What are you waiting for? Now, of course, it's not as simple as just saying, that's it, I'm going to be a full-time gospel worker. You need the affirmation and approval of others. You need to be tested, your maturity, your character, your gifting. But given that there's undoubtedly still a long way to go, are you willing at this point to say to the Lord, here I am. Send me as a gospel worker if it be your will. Does that sound like a risky commitment to make, as Patty talked earlier? Well, giving yourself to be a gospel worker, as Patty said, always involves some risk. I love the quote from John Stott that he puts there on your page, page 29. I think he puts the challenge well for us. Where are the Christians, he says, who are prepared to put service before security, compassion before comfort, hardship before ease? Thousands of pioneer Christian tasks are waiting to be done which challenge our complacency and which call for risk. Insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. Jesus had no security except in his Father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger and rejection for his sake. Imagine if there were a flood of people from this generation in the EU at Sydney Uni who flooded into all of God's world as gospel workers. What a blessing we could be to God's global mission. God could use us here at Ancon 2019 to bring the good news of God's gospel. Choose to do that. Are you up for it? Are you willing to make the send me commitment? It's there on your screen. Under God, I commit myself to being a gospel worker in God's global harvest field. It starts under God because we realise this is all up to God in the end and it's His leading and His process. We offer ourselves, but He guides the steps. Are you ready to say with me, with the other LRLR workers, with the rest of the EU staff team and all those who you know in your churches, who've given up their professions to serve as gospel workers, here I am, send me. If you are willing to say, yes, send me, then I want you to do two things. In a moment we're going to pray, but I'd like you to send a text with those words, send me, plus your name and your EU faculty to the mobile number, and no secrets, that belongs to, uh, that mobile number, belongs to Paddy. I want you to send, send me, plus your name and EU faculty, to Paddy's number there. And then we'll get in contact with you to help you move forward in processing this commitment. And in a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And if you want to make this commitment, then at a certain point in the prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask those around you to reach out, put their hand on you as you make this send me commitment. And I'm going to lead us in prayer for you. Let me finish with Paul's words. 
How are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. And I'm going to use the words of a hymn written by Count Zinzendorf, printed on page 30, which is a prayer praising Jesus for all that he's done to make us righteous. So let's pray. Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am. From sin and fear, from guilt and shame. The holy, meek, unspotted Lamb, who from the Father's bosom came, who died for me, e'en me, to atone. Now for my Lord and God I own. Jesus, the endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made. An everlasting ransom paid. Oh, let the dead in sin now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus, your blood and righteousness. Father, we thank you for your great love for us in sending your Son to take on the likeness of sinful flesh and to become sin for us. Thank you that he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that because of his death and resurrection, we are justified by your grace. We praise you, Father, for your mercy. Help us to let go of all else and hold firmly to the Lord Jesus, that we might be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, which we know is no righteousness at all but having the righteousness that comes from you through your Son, Jesus, alone. We owe everything to you, Father, for you have given everything to us. Open our lips, Father, that we might declare your praise to the waiting world. And now, Father, we want to commit to you those who are ready to commit themselves under your hand to being proclaimers of your gospel in your global harvest field. And can those ready to make the send me commitment please stand and if there are some standing around you you might like to place a hand on them we thank you father for these our sisters and brothers and the way you've moved in them to make this commitment tonight please guide their steps Open doors for fruitful gospel ministry to them around the world. Surround them with wise counsellors as they discern what is best, as they seek to serve you. And help us to support them in prayer and encouragement and financial generosity as the needs arise. We pray not just for them, but for all of us, 
that we might all proclaim the wonders of your Son, Jesus, with more thanks and more joy and more boldness, so that all your world might know of your grace to us in him. We ask all this in Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen.